uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. When was that, 86? 86. And he ran into a guy that some of you know here by the name of Tommy Ice in the bookstore at Dallas Seminary. And Tommy introduced himself, uh, talked to him, and he was so excited that Wayne was on faculty, immediately got to a telephone and called me. Said, you're not going to believe it. There's a Ventilian presuppositionalist that's going to be on the theology faculty at Dallas Seminary. And uh, so he was, uh, and I was suitably excited. I had not at that time expected that I would be moving to Dallas to work on my doctorate, and I had a couple of courses with Wayne. That's when I first got to know him. Uh, we've been friends over the years. I have uh, uh, got him included in a ministry that he has gone on to be with quite a bit, WHW. Uh, ministries and um, and then he was the first person I that went to Israel with and he taught me how to uh, take tour groups and lead tour groups and that sort of thing so Wayne has been very influential in about 1982 or 83 he wrote a fantastic article that was published in Bibliotheca Sacra which is Dallas Seminary's theological journal uh, called uh, uh, Tongues and the Mystery Religions in Corinth you remember reading that? You ever read that? I mean, that was instrumental in understanding so much mystery religions, the background for the New Test, uh, two, a lot of New Testament issues and tongues, and uh, that was very influential. Wayne has written hundreds of different articles. He's published 40 books. A couple of them I'm going to highlight. One that he brought with him that you can get at his book table is called The Theory and Practice of Biblical Hermeneutics. Essays in Honor of Elliot Johnson. He has also uh, written a book that uh, put him on the map for good or for ill for a number of people that I think is the best book on the topic that I recommend for everyone. And this came out in the late 70s, and it's still a major issue. It's called The Role of Women uh, in Ministry. And so I encourage you uh, to read that. Also, he has written, co-authored a number of books, uh, chart books of the Bible, and I recommend those. He also has written a book called Israel, the Land and Its People. Uh, which is very helpful. If you've gone to Israel, would like to go to Israel, I highly recommend that uh, for background reading. I have a list. Literally, it covers 80% of this page of his academic accomplishments and degrees, and I'm not going to go through all of those, but he has his his doctorate, he has degrees in uh, in law from Regent University School of Law. His doctor of theology is from Concordia Seminary. He has a master of arts in patristic Greek from Abilene Christian University. Were you baptized when you went there? That's a Church of Christ school, so that's kind of an inside joke there. So... Um, I am, I've been wanting to bring Wayne here to be at this conference since we started it, and we finally got it all worked out. So with that, Wayne, come up, and he's going to have four sessions on hermeneutics, and this will be the first of those. Second, you can keep talking. <laughs> and, you know, it might be the last. No. Be careful. I'll tell jokes on you. I know you. All right. It's going to take just a second. All things had to be readjusted here, if you'll pardon me. 
Well, uh, it's good to be here. I uh, have been to Houston many times, but I've never been to this church. I didn't realize that Randy, uh, excuse me, that uh, Robbie wanted me to come. So, uh, does everybody go without shoes here, Robbie? Where are you? I actually like that idea. At home, I never wear shoes. I grew up that way. So, uh, I have never seen in my whole life a pulpit this big. Isn't that amazing? Any of you who decide that you would like to get a copy of this uh, new book on the uh, theory and practice of biblical hermeneutics, uh, I also have for you that you can put in it a bookmark that looks just like it. I did not bring but one copy of the book I'm going to show you right now, but I own a publishing company now, and we've produced, I guess, 30 books so far in the last year or so. Uh, but this is a brand new one, just came off, and it's just going off the shelves. Every day I watch these things come through my computer about the sales, and they just sold about 600 at Shepherd's Conference in California. But by Michael Flotch, who maybe some of you know, uh, he's written a number of great books, but uh, called He Will Reign Forever, A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God. And uh, I have not compared it with what you've done here, but nonetheless, this is what Michael has put together. It's a very well-written book. If he, I didn't bring but this, and Robbie's already got it. So, uh, But these are available, and I can tell you how to do it by going to lampionpress.com, and you can order it directly from there, and it'll be shipped to you. Okay? I think it's got that. Um, one other thing, my wife, Irina, is with me. Uh, basically still a new bride. We married just barely over a year ago in the home of Ray Charles in California at a person. Where are you, Robbie? I'm looking for you. In the house of R.A. Williams, the charge of the WHW ministries that Robbie and I used to do. And so uh, Rena's here on the front. Uh, you can just wave. Okay, there you go. Thank you. Well, uh, with the time I have left, I want to start moving through this topic. We're going to do four talks. And I was trying to think exactly how to do this. Hermeneutics is my area of specialty if I ever have one. Uh, I, I work in so many different areas, it's hard to know what my interest is. I'm interested in everything. But my doctoral work was specifically in hermeneutics. And that way I went from having taught uh, uh, in theology in that area to uh, be a full professor of constitutional law and taught hermeneutics there too. So a uh, different kind of way of looking at it, but I enjoy both. But we're going to tackle this topic now. And... Uh, I'm not sure exactly not having used all these materials that I'm going to show you. I actually have some things I've done in the past, but others not. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how far I'll get because it's hard to know how long you'll talk on something in your first time through it. But uh, I hope to allow some time for questions. If not today, maybe in some of the other talks, you can sort of fill in and ask questions even from today if you want. But you'll notice the... Uh, title that, uh, that, I keep, uh, that Robbie uh, gave to me was Problems and Challenges on Interpretation, and so we're going to tackle that. The first talk, just to familiarize you with it, is can we really know something to be true? And I think that's an important question. I, when I teach hermeneutics at the school I'm at, uh, I usually use this as my first talk uh, because it's important to understand uh, the idea of truth and knowledge because I get this all the time when I talk to people about, I know this to be true, or, and I've even dealt with people, well, I, I, that may be saying it, but I have a different view. 
And I'm saying, what is your view and how do you back it up? Well, I just believe it's true and, and so forth. So we're going to run through that in just a little bit. Uh, then the part two of today is what is the interpretive test? What's this all about? How do we go about interpretation? What's the proper procedure to understand the meaning and the application of Scripture? We'll talk about that. Uh, tomorrow we'll have two talks. One is part one, what is the philosophy of meaning and significance in the thinking of E.D. Hirsch? Anybody ever heard of the name Hirsch? A few of you. Uh, I would say the last 20 books, I've, of the, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, uh, it's in the top 20 of the books that I've ever read. Uh, I had to read it three times to really grab it and understand it well. But Hirsch had a tremendous impact on my whole thinking about interpretation. And so we'll be talking about Hirsch, uh, who determines the meaning of Scripture, how does one distinguish the type meaning. These are all Hirschian concepts. So the first part of the talk tomorrow will be largely the dealing with the issue of E.D. Hirsch. Uh, part two deals with the process of interpretation that's literal, what we mean by that and how to go about dealing with literary genre and how to deal with the question of application, which is very oftentimes confused with interpretation. We'll talk about that. Talk three that we'll have will concentrate on the question of historic premillennialism. Now, I asked Robbie's uh, permission to just go ahead and essentially use a talk that I did at pre-trib. And if you have heard that talk, then it will be hopefully a refresher. Or if you were sleeping then, it will be new. <laughs> and so we'll go through this because I think that what I lay out in that, uh, I was so happy at the end of it that I felt like it, it, it had really put together in my mind and some others who came up to me the whole problem of interpreting the Old Testament from the New. And I think that might be of some value to you because that is a major problem. Whether you're in the historic premillennialism, amillennialism, or other views, uh, the tendency to wrongly connect the Old and New Testaments. And last of all, I thought this would be fun. I went through and solved all the problems that you've thought about. Uh, <laughs> The, the, I, I just, all I'm going to do that last talk is just talk about some biblical passages that are misunderstood by people and how we might better understand them based on the, pro, the concept of interpretation I'm going to talk to you about. All right? Well, that's how the train starts. Now we'll move on. How do we know? I actually have done this talk before. I've changed it up some for this talk here today, but I've altered some things. But I used to name this, How Do We Know That What We Think We Know We Really Know? And I thought that might be too much. So we're, we shortened it down. How do we know? So what is knowledge? People say, I know this, I know that, and I'm thinking, how do you know that? What do you mean when you say you know something? And so uh, if you put it together, what it really is, knowledge, knowledge, really knowing, not thinking and guessing, but really knowing is justified true belief. And all three components, if you want to say what's your whole talk about, this first portion of our address today, if you know justified true belief, you know the essence of what it's all about. Because I'm going to say this several times, but it all comes back to the same places. Do some people know what others only believe? How many people say, I believe this and I believe that, right? Everybody does that, right? You say, even I know this and I know that. But sometimes believing and knowing are not the same thing. Uh, belief is actually a part of knowledge, but it is not knowledge itself. Some people say scientists know truth. You ever heard read these guys? They know, whereas I only believe. 
as though they don't believe too. And so what is meant by that? Faith is believing what is contrary to the evidence. I actually read that in a federal judge's opinion in a law journal article that I published, and I could not believe this federal uh, district judge said, people who believe, or people of faith, are those who believe what is contrary to the evidence. And I read that and I thought, is this guy, is he awake? Uh, Paul the Apostle said, if in fact certain things didn't really happen, then faith is worthless. And I've taught my students that you do not have faith as speculation. Faith must be built on fact or it's worthless. Now, you'll never know the fact in totality. You can't know it comprehensively. No one knows anything totally. But faith is that which is built upon factual truth. And we'll deal with that some more. In other words, what does it mean to believe something in contrast to knowing something? This is really relating to biblical interpretations, the reason I do this. It's also what we call sometimes epistemology, but I, that's a technical term for the theory of what is knowledge and so forth and what is truth. But this applies so much to biblical interpretation in my interaction with people in the church. When I listen to them, how they talk about how they know what this scripture means and don't, you know, how do they come to that view? Um, subjective, two aspects to belief. One, the subjective is the mental state of conviction. All of us believe something, but what does that mean? We have two elements. One is subjective, the other is objective. We believe, that's a conviction that we have, that what we say we think we believe, you know, this is what is true. This is what that passage teaches. We believe that. That's our conviction. But then we have to have a proposition that connects to it. I believe that. The belief is conviction, subjective. That brings a proposition which is objective. What do I believe? I believe that this and this is true. I believe that, for example, that... Uh, uh, you know, that women can pastor churches. That's a belief. That's a conviction. A lot of people have that strong conviction. And then they have their proposition that that is what they believe the Bible teaches. That's the fact. Or even a particular passage. I'll never forget when we had a discussion one time on the question of divorce in a church I was at. And the entire elder group, we'd gone through and we'd spent two years on the topic. We'd read through several books. We'd looked through church history. We'd read theology. I did a master's thesis on the question, so I knew something about it too. And we came to it and we presented it. One guy in the back said, we don't need these things you're trying to present. The Bible is plain for what it says. I said, well, there are five interpretations of this particular passage in the history of the church. And why do you think yours is correct? I just read it for what it says. And he gives us his view. And I said, that's your interpretation of it. That's not what it says. It says something quite different. And then you gave a meaning to it. And that became your interpretation, but you had just simply said, what I believe is truth. Whereas the, the, all the elders came to a totally different view. But we were obviously wrong because we couldn't read the Bible for what it says. Uh, that happens quite often. Belief is made up of content, the proposition. Now, the content of a belief is expressed in a proposition, and that then becomes a truth claim. This is what I claim to be true. And that's what we're reaching for, right? Everyone in here, I would think, if you're talking about biblical interpretation, what you're seeking for is what? Ultimately, truth. See, I'm willing to change my mind. I have, throughout the history of my Christian life, I've changed my mind several times on viewpoints. 
And the reason why is because I was more concerned. I'm not even saying I'm necessarily true about a view. We can debate that question. I don't think it's important not to be arrogant. But on the other hand, uh, I was more concerned that what I come to be the truth than hold my viewpoint. And I think all of us need to have that view that is truth is the ultimate aim. In any passage of Scripture we interpret, any theological view we adopt, truth is more important, not my ego. Otherwise, I'd still be a Wesleyan Arminian Pentecostal, all of which I gradually dropped. <laughs> but, but it was painful sometimes. I lost family on some parts of it and friends on others. But you have to decide which is most important, truth or something else. So, truth claims. Here's some truth claims, by the way. Oregon is beautiful. That's aesthetic judgment. Thomas Jefferson was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence as a historical fact. Not the entire. He had also helpers. Octavian Augustus Caesar was emperor of the Roman Empire when Jesus was born. That's a historical fact. Well, is it or is it not? There's, matter of fact, far less about Augustus Caesar than there is about Jesus, but nonetheless. Babies emit brain waves in the first few weeks after conception. Scientific fact. God is an infinite being of three persons who share the same essence but are three in distinction. Theological fact. By the way, I'm going to give you a quote in a few minutes where a person says that this is wrong. I hope you've not used his Bible. Anyway. All persons have an innumerable number of beliefs, even beliefs they have never consciously considered. Right? I believe that the elevator to which I'm about to step has cords that are strong enough to hold the weight of all those on board. I really don't give a lot of thought to that when I walk in, push the button, but I'm 16 stores up or whatever, stories up, you know, and I've got other people in there, and I'm wondering, who checked this last? <laughs> I don't really think that. Do you? I mean, some of you may, but I don't. I believe that I was actually born to my mother and father with whom I reside rather than belonging to someone else and having been kidnapped from the hospital. <laughs> and I was told that I was actually born of them, you know. How do I know? Well, how many have really gone back and done an investigation on your birth certificate? I know some of you have done an investigation on somebody's birth certificate, but that's another question. <laughs> that's another question. But the fact is, we don't sometimes think about this stuff, but you know what? There are people that were kidnapped. And didn't have their right parents in that regard. But we don't think about these unconsidered beliefs. I believe that the books of the Bible are the ones that should be included in the canon of Scripture for Christians to read and follow. Now, I guess I guarantee you right now, if I were to ask, and you don't have to raise your hand, if I were to ask how many have actually done a thorough historical study to be sure that the books that you read in the so-called Protestant Bible the 27 books of the New Testament, 39, are the real ones, are the right ones, and there shouldn't be other ones. See, you ever thought about that? Well, it's delivered by angels to the bookstores. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I mean, it comes from God. No, but how did it get that way? Who among us have actually done the studies to know that those things are true or not? Now, I have, and uh, a few others here, probably, I hope, but if not, uh, we believe things sometimes we haven't really firmly studied ourselves. All persons have innumerable number of beliefs, even beliefs that have never been considered. Also, they hold false beliefs. See? 
So what is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. There are other two other viewpoints on that. I'm not going to go into these details uh, very much, but I would hold to a view that's called correspondence theory, and that's the correct one, so you don't even have to read the other two. Uh, but, but that is that truth corresponds to reality. <laughs> that is what is known in the world. Here's an interesting statement from C.S. Lewis. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It's an interesting statement. I thought about that a while. And I think he really holds to the correspondence theory at that point. Because what he says, not only do I believe that the sun has risen because I see it, that's a fact. In other words, I observe something that can be demonstrated and argued and shown to be known to be true. But by its rising, I understand the rest of the world. This sounds a lot like, in some respects, Francis Schaeffer, who sought to make sense of the world by Christianity. He says, Christianity makes sense of the world. It explains our dignity. It explains our evil. It explains many things in the world. So it's not only that I come to know something to be true, but by knowing that truth, I can understand the rest. And I think Christianity does answer the world's questions. How do, I, how do knowledge then and belief relate? There's a difference between the two. If truth is known as necessarily believed and true, but simply believing in a proposition does not make that proposition known or true. People believe a lot of things. And I know people who, when they deal with the interpretation of Scripture, they have been taught certain things and they read them in a certain way without even doing the study on them. I did that as a Pentecostal. For years I looked at Romans chapter 8. And where it says that that when we do not know how we should pray, the Spirit He prays, He Himself prays, and He does it with uh, un- words and unutterable. And I thought that was talking about the Spirit praying through me in tongues. You ever heard that? And one day I was reading that passage in Greek. <laughs> I, w- I wasn't encumbered by the English at that point. I was actually reading the Greek. And I was reading what it said and translating. I thought, hold it, that doesn't say that. And my whole view of reality changed because I noticed that I had an intensive pronoun with the Spirit. I noticed that the uh, preposition was not through but in behalf of. I noticed that it says that they are alaitois, words that do, are, are, are utterings that do, are, are groanings that do not have any words. I thought, how do I speak in tongues without words? The whole passage turned around by reading it more carefully. We sometimes think that we know something and we haven't really given the consideration to the passage. We just read it so often that we don't read the words anymore. Would you agree with me? And so that's, that's something we have to do about true knowledge. Now, here's a statement from one of my friends. Uh, well, I like him, actually. I, I sort of found him funny. But this statement... There, there's only one requirement of any of, us, any of us, and that is to be courageous. Because courage, as you might know, defines all other human behavior. Hmm. And I believe that because I've done a little of this myself, pretending to be courageous is as good as the real thing. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that several times. And then I came up with a word for it. It's called gobbledygook. That thing doesn't make a, a lick of sense. 
But this makes as much sense as I just got through writing an article for a Christian Research Journal. I had to send it in yesterday. <laughs> and um, on uh, a guy by the name of Dake, D-A-K-E, Finnis Dake, has some interesting teachings in Zanonated Reference Bible. They asked me to interact with his statement, and I'm going to show you a statement a little bit later on, where he said that God has a spirit body, not merely spirit. He's spirit substance, arms, legs, everything. And the whole question of interpretation comes in there. But uh, I read some of his stuff, and I found them so contradictory in thought, very much like this. But people claim to have knowledge who absolutely do not understand what they're saying. Well, let me move on. Here's another statement. I believe that two people are connected at the heart. doesn't matter what you do or who you are or where you live. There are no boundaries or barriers if two people are destined to be together. These are the kind of statements that people make. Even some politicians sound this way. That is, you make statements, I believe this, and then come to the fact of truth without any serious argument. But here's the best. By the way, I purposely did this because I'm in Houston. I'm sorry. I tried to find a statement that I thought would represent the mental acumen of one of your pastors. I believe that if you keep your faith, and I believe that you keep your trust, and I believe if you keep the right attitude, and I believe if you're grateful, you'll see God open up new doors. And so all my efforts will cause God to do what he does. Does the conclusion follow from the statements of belief? By the way, there's some really weird stuff coming out of him now. It doesn't surprise me. Well, then you have belief, but what is justification? It's the link between belief and truth. See, it's one thing to say that I believe something is true. It's another thing to be able to demonstrate that it is, in fact, true because there are beliefs that are irrational and there are beliefs that are rational. Now, anybody read the book by... Um, um, my goodness, I, I should know it because I wrote a book against it. <laughs> I did a book, actually two books, on open theism, one with Norm Geisler. But uh, a man who can help me out, he, he was at Bethel. Greg Boyd, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I know the guy. But anyway, it's, it's, I've been doing this since I was 20, so it's not a senior moment. Uh, it's that he actually says in this book at the very beginning the reason why he was changing his view is because a woman came in to him and said, You know, Pastor, I'm mad at God. And he said, Why are you mad at God? And she said, Because God told me to marry my husband. And we were going to go into the ministry and do wonderful things, and he found another woman, he's left me. I'm mad at God. God told me to marry him. And Greg Boyd's answer to that was different than what I would give. His answer was that, don't be mad at God. He didn't know that this man would do that. <laughs> now, I have written a number, number of very lengthy articles on any number of the attributes of God relating to open theism. I gave them over a series of years at ETS. But I thought, you know, to tell somebody, don't be mad at God because he simply didn't know what was going to happen is not one of the best answers. <laughs> I would say, who told you that God told you that? Or how did you come to that view? You know, I had some kind of spiritual experience. Uh, 
I'll never forget a, a mentor of mine for many years by the name of Earl Rodmacher. Uh, we did a study Bible together with Ron Allen. You may be familiar with that one. Uh, he told me a story one time where he was up teaching on hermeneutics. And he had a, um, a woman come up to him afterwards and said, Dr. Rodmacher, and she was crying. And he looked at her and says, what's wrong? Did I offend you somehow? He said, no, no, uh, you, you didn't offend me. I just feel so sorry for you. Because he'd been explaining what you've got to do to be, you know, interpret Scripture. And he said, what do you feel sorry for me? He said, because you have to do all that work, and the Holy Spirit tells me what the Scripture means. I don't know how I would have answered that. But what he did was he handed her his Greek New Testament and said, would you please give me the meaning of this passage here? And she says, well, I can't read Greek. He said, that's not a problem. The Holy Spirit can. (laughs) And that's what we're dealing with sometimes where people who are biblical interpreters, how they interpret Scripture. Uh, Any two or three people who love each other should be able to be married. You can come out with sorts of belief. God woke me up last night. It might have been the pizza. (laughs) Joseph Smith received golden plates from an angel. Anybody believe that one here? Yeah, right, might be. Jesus rose from the dead. I have seen God. The Bible says no one has ever seen God, by the way. And if you say you've seen him, you and I need to talk. (laughs) The point of it is we can come to any number of ways that we deal with truth but we can make judgments that are not based on sound principles. Uh, We read what the apostle says. He didn't say, I have a feeling in my heart that Jesus rose from the dead. I just got up this morning and sensed that to be true or any such thing. Uh, Paul said that I know it's true because Scripture said it was true. It was prophesied that he would, in fact, die and was buried and would rise from the dead. He based it, first of all, on his confidence in the teachings of Scripture, which is what I think you would do in interpretation. That is, you come with confidence to begin with. Now, not all of us can start off at square zero. It's not as though we're someone like a a philosopher who would say, I'm going to start at the beginning and work up. I'm going to deny everything and set one thing. There's a philosopher who did that. Well... We, we have to go sometimes with confidence in what we do know at the point. Uh, when I started reading Scripture, I had not studied it thoroughly. And to probably I haven't studied it thoroughly to this point. But we come to knowledge by testing. None of us come to know everything. I tell students very often, you do not have to know everything to know something. See, if it were required to know everything, you'd be God to begin with. And you're not going to reach that one. And even if you're required to know a lot about everything to make a decision, you can't do it. But you need to have a rational basis for your decision-making, and it can't be just simply a feeling you get inside. There's a lot of people who interpret Scripture that way, and I could give you many examples, having been an elder at a church one time where we discussed things with people and what they came up for their view. I even had one person one time when we were discussing a question and he said, and he said that Scripture was talking about this, and it, it means this. And I said, well, uh, it really doesn't. <laughs> and he said, well, how do you know? That's my view. And I said, yeah, but the Greek word can't mean that. I mean, if it had options, I'd give the options to you for us to talk about them. But there is no option. It means only this. 
And they said, that's not fair. He said, it's not fair that you're using Greek and I don't know Greek. And I thought, I'm sorry, I'm just going to erase all those tens and thousands of dollars and all that nights of study and all that work so that we can be on an equal footing here. Uh, if you don't know it, learn it. I'm sorry. You know, I can't erase what I know. And so you have that kind of problem. We all have to come from where we are, but there are principles that will help us stay on the right path. So there are basic understandings. See, I believe God really wants to be understood. I don't think that uh, He's trying to hide something per se. Even in reference to the natural order, God has made plain, the apostle says in Romans 1, He made it plain, not, not difficult. He made it plain about His eternal Godhead, His attributes. One can look at nature and surmise things about who God is. Certainly not in the entirety. Scripture provides more clarity. But He made us, inex it's inexcusable for us not to recognize it. That's what the Apostle says. And in the same way, I think that Scripture is not beyond us in understanding whether it be a person that's a scholar or whether a person is not. God desires to communicate. He actually came down under no compulsion and said, I'm here. Now, we have two problems we're dealing with. One is to go from the mind and will of God to the attitude and actions of people. See, God doesn't just want us to know Scripture. He wants us to act upon it. But it's very difficult to properly act upon it if we don't know it. And we can't know it unless we've spent time to develop what I've called justified true belief. That is, there must be a basis upon which we claim certain things to be true, not just because I think it ought to be that way. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go into this. This would be an entire course if I did it. But the fact is, God has given us a revelation of Himself. He's transmitted it. He's had it translated. And we then, at that juncture, on this little bridge, are to the area of interpretation, then ultimately illumination and application. And we're just going to talk about a really small portion of this thing. Introduction to the interpretive task. I will be emphasizing something as we move through all the way through the four talks, and that is that there is only one meaning to any passage of Scripture. Now, I know we have all sorts of perspectives on that. You have typological meanings and any number of other ways. You say, well, this has a double meaning and a double fulfillment and a this and that, and we can discuss what we mean by that. We can discuss that, and sometimes what happens is that we're really, we're really not against each other. We're just crossing a little bit our terms. But the Scripture means only one thing. It's out of the mind of God, and it's out of the mind of the author. It means one thing. And we can talk about what that means when the time comes. But the fact is that we use certain elements to understand Scripture. I've given to you here the word hermeneutics, and then you have culture and context and syntax and words. We have to start ultimately with words. You start on the inside and work out. You have words. God actually wrote in words. And I might tell you at this point that I have a prejudice. And that is, I really, really believe that both those who need to work in English or even those who can work in Greek and Hebrew or whatever and want to refer to English, 
The fact of it is that uh, the nearer you get to the words of the original text, rather the interpretation of the, of the translator, the better you are. So I prefer to use essentially literal translations. Uh, it's amazing, though, even with someone like me who at 10 years old came to Christ, 14 started preaching, I started studying the Scripture constantly. And you know what book I read? It's amazing as a young boy between the ages of 10 and 14 reading the Bible, taking Bible correspondence courses and all sorts of stuff, it's amazing that I can actually read the King James. I know that's beyond the capability of your average person today to read that Bible. But the fact is I'm not pushing the King James only idea. I'm just simply saying God has, has given us words, and I think the nearer we can get to the words that we find in the Hebrew and Greek, the better off we are. I don't much care for the NIV. I certainly think that the message is not even a Bible. And there, I, I prefer to stay to essential little translations because it enables me to more closely deal with the words of the text rather than the interpretation of the translator. So, And we can discuss that question more if you want to. But I stay with, with those that are more essentially literal. But then you have these words. We want to study words. And the words add up to sentences and up to paragraphs and up to books. And we study then the syntax, the context, and the culture. And these are things that uh, if it's amazing. We as Christians sometimes have a lot of books that we buy and a lot of other things we buy, but we simply have such a lacking of books dealing with Bible interpretation, biblical studies. Uh, if you don't have books that provide these kinds of information, then you lack the tools necessary to properly understand Scripture, in my view. Well, let me move on. Uh, so you have revelation is the unveiling of truth, and God does it. We could not have come to it apart from him. And then inspiration is God recording it through the apostles and prophets without error in my perspective. Uh, I'm an, uh, a fundamentalist, I guess. But uh, even as you have the inerrant word, without sin, you have the inerrant scripture, the written words without error. I like this little poem. Have you ever seen this poem? I have no idea where it came from. It, it doesn't have an author. It does have an author. It's just not known. He said, Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all those hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so thought I, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon, yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. So in a word, that's my view of inerrancy. Now, uh, what we have, though, is communicate the process. God chose to reveal something to us. We would not know much about God without it. Okay, that's just the way it works. But he has to transmit these words, through, obviously through the apostles and through the prophets of old, in written form to be understood, because he wanted to deal with words that could reach our minds, gave us capability to understand them. So he transmitted it, and Robbie, you've seen this place. Uh, I think you were digging out there close to it, right? This is Cave 4. 
where the Isaiah scroll and many others were found. God chose to work and do it through human means and produce documents like this. I'm not going to spend time talking about these. I'm just showing them for those that haven't seen them. These are the kinds of documents that actually came about. It takes a while to learn to read this stuff. Uh, it comes about in the form most of us read this, which is easier and still, again, not easy. And then you have the Greek, such as found in these documents that find their way into a Greek testament. I'm not taking a lot of time to talk about this. It's just these are the things that God has provided for us. If you notice something about that, though, some people believe that unless God makes it easy, it's unfair. Remember my statement? It's not fair that you know something that I don't know because you studied you know, 12 years full-time of Greek and I haven't studied it at all, so it's not right and fair. You know, I went through several graduate degrees and undergraduate degrees working in Greek. So I read the stuff. I'm sorry he can't. If he's willing to invest his time, he'll get it. Okay? But if we don't have some of the abilities, we sometimes have what the Bible calls teachers. You know, you don't need a teacher if you already know it. Really? Do you? If you already know everything the teacher's about to say, there's not much reason you need that teacher. What you think is, though, that he'll probably offer something you don't know or another twist you haven't thought about. But you have teachers in the Scripture for very specific reasons. Then you have translations, and the translations went from one. What was the first translation? Septuagint. First translation, the Bible. Third century B.C. and none. Well, I'm not going to go into all that, but I like this I like this statement. This is the reason I put it in here. The Geneva Bible. You ever heard of the Geneva Bible? Very important Bible of the of previous days. Listen to this statement. Now, as we have chiefly observed the sense and labored always to restore it to all integrity, so have we most reverently kept the propriety of the words, considering that the apostles who spake and wrote to the Gentiles in the Greek tongue rather constrained them to the lively phrase of the Hebrew than enterprise far by mollifying their language to speak as the Gentiles did. And for this and other causes, we have in many places reserved the Hebrew phrases, notwithstanding that they may seem somewhat hard in their ears that are not well practiced, and also delight in the sweet-sounding phrases of the Holy Scriptures. I think that every time I look at the NIV and I look at the KJV, or even something like NASV, or you know, something like that, it, it smoothed out for me, and they lose some of the phrases and some of the language and some of the cadence some of the beauty of reading the, the scriptures. And, I, and I, read, I read that and think of it. Well, let's move to the interpretive task. What is hermeneutics? I picked Bernard Ram because a lot of people, anybody who studying the Bernard Ram's works? You know, there are many definite, you know, you can go to all these books on interpretation. You find people defining it. I like Ram's statement. Hermeneutics, which is from a Greek word which means to interpret or translate is a science and art of biblical interpretation. It's a science because it's guided by rules within a system. It's an art because the application of the rules is by skill and not by mechanical imitation. That is, you have to spend some time working on it to do it right. Interpretation, then, is the effort to determine what the Bible means by what it says, finding out what the author meant in the historical, grammatical context in which he was writing putting the meaning into contemporary equivalent expressions, and hermeneutics is the foundation of that then. Now, 
Let me say there's two basic issues, and this is where I'm going to uh, uh, try to simplify this for you and make it uh, broken down a little bit. Two basic problems we encounter in interpretation today. The issue is not between, as some people talk about when they talk about literal interpretation, and they think that means something like non-figurative interpretation, so that everything is a symbol. That is not what is meant by literal. Literal in reference to a philosophy of understanding is in contrast to what we call allegorical. Literal, as we use it in reference to the question of language and, and, and the form of language we take, is, is in contrast to what we might call figurative. And so there's a distinction in how we use the terms. So when we have the idea of a literal versus allegorical, uh, what we find is that the allegorical interpretation came about really ultimately out of the Greeks. And I'm going to make this brief because I'm watching my time. And that is that you have a... The Greeks had stories of their origins and gods and goddesses and all sorts of fables and things. And when people became more sophisticated, they began to think, what are we going to do with those stories? And so now they philosophically moved to a new view of religion. And so they took the former tales and fables and said, we have to make those somehow mean something else. They really didn't happen. What happened, the Jews did the same thing. They came to the idea in Alexandria, very influenced by Greek thought and philosophical thought, and they said, what do we do with these stories in the Bible? All these accounts, all these events, the creation account, all these issues of, of, the, of the Canaanites going, you know, being destroyed by the Jews when they went into the land. And they thought, how do I deal with the text of Scripture? I want to hold on to my past and my tradition, but... It's not sophisticated enough. It doesn't follow my view of the world today, a new, a new way of looking at the things. And so they developed allegory for the Jews in their interpretation. And the same thing took place, by the way, in reference to the church. In the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, and particularly after the time of Augustine, uh, you begin to have a development of the philosophy ideas that the Bible, when it talks about the things in the New Testament and the Old Testament, simply can't be taken straightforward for those things. I mean, did Jesus really do the miracles? Did people really rise from the dead? You know, are all these things that we see in the text really true? And they realize that it's going to be very difficult to hold that and be sophisticated in our new way of thinking. And so they developed allegory in the church. And that came out of people like Clement of Alexandria and Origen, and eventually culminating in someone like who was a very powerhouse called Augustine, St. Augustine, in which, unbelievable, you develop layers of understanding in which the literal, straightforward, plain meaning of the text simply didn't seem to have the punch, didn't seem to have the force, didn't seem to fit our current way of thinking. And when I was thinking on this question, I thought, that is exactly our problem today, is because with people like Bultmann and others, and he's just one of many that we could talk about, who began to look at the text and said it doesn't fit into our way of thinking. And yet I don't want to jettison the text. I don't want to jettison the idea of the faith. So I hold on to those things in order uh, through putting it through a lesser a grid and saying, well, it's sort of what people were thinking, but there's something more important that we want to say through it. And so much of liberalism that we have today comes about through the same reason.
Now, I have got more to say here, but I'm looking because it took us a while to get going, and it's 2.20, and I'm supposed to stop at 2.30? Oh, oh, thank God. I was looking at this clock and I thought, okay, I got, how am I going to do all this? All right, I got more time. Where's your thing? You're going to warn me. It's been only 50 minutes. Well, only 50 minutes. Oh, I'm gonna, I can start, keep on then. Okay, so I'm going to just said all those things that I was going to say there. That's gone. Now, uh, the allegorical view then is one that began to be interpreted by the church, Jews and others, in order to explain away the problems of the text. My concern today, even among those who are friends of mine, who are Christian gentlemen and, and ladies uh, who uh, study Scripture, and I don't doubt that they have a vivid faith in Christ and so forth, I think in many ways find themselves embarrassed by texts that seem to not fit into the current milieu of thinking, and we call that Reformed thought in reference to eschatology. I think there's a lot of that there. Because I have talked, and they say, well, listen, you talk about all those things happening in the Bible and all these figures and all this kind of stuff. They want to say, well, that's sort of, you know, that's sort of like the Greeks and the Jews thought, even the church in the early days thought about, I don't want to try to deal with that. It's just too complicated or it doesn't, it's not sophisticated. Or I'd rather talk in more philosophical and theological terms rather than deal with those difficulties and certain eschatological questions. So I think that's exactly the same thing is taking place. That is that we, we find our need to go to allegory in reverence to seeing the text plainly for what it says. And we can take some questions on that if you want. But there was a Syrian school at one time, and around, it came around about 200 A.D., right after the time of Clement of Alexandria and also Origen, who began to allegorize, and they had developed a literal interpretation approach. And this actually existed for some time, had an impact on the church, but the Roman church later, as it developed, moved strictly to allegory. What happened in the Reformation? Well, it's interesting, because the hermeneutical relationships that we talked about actually are jettisoned because the reformer said we must go back, if we're going to study the Hebrew and the Greek, pay attention clearly to the words, believe in the divine revelation and the ability to interpret the Bible they said we must go back to literal interpretation and jettison allegory. Okay? The primacy of the languages and all these things cause them to want to uh, give due consideration to the text itself and not just simply uh, try to create a philosophical view of the world uh, by interpreting the text in non-literal form. That is except for eschatology. I find that fascinating. Why? Why? And there are reasons for that. It came actually to Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, I, whom I have spent a lot of time studying, uh, there's so many, he's a very complicated person to, to study. He's, there's so many ins and outs of that guy. But he actually at one point in his life was very concerned about the Jews and he believed that the Jews had a future before God as a future people until they wouldn't accept his preaching. And when they didn't accept his preaching, he started reading newspapers, so to speak. And he saw the Islamic hordes, he saw the beast in, the, in Rome, and he had it all worked out, 
by his view. And he said, if they don't accept the gospel, then they truly are rejected because if God had ever intended them actually to be restored, they would be in their land today. Now, what do we have said in June of 48? You know what I'm saying? He had it figured out. He actually was somewhat leaning to the idea of a future place for the Jews in God's program. He rejected it because he looked around him instead of looking at Scripture. He left his hermeneutics and went to the, to the world. And, but we have the same problems in which we try to interpret through newspaper theology, and we skip the Scripture sometimes too. The main thing we have to do is stick with literal interpretation. Well, what do we have when in literal interpretation? Here are the points. Principle one, priority of original languages. Now, I am, I see, I've never checked these things, Robbie, to, to find out where Chafer is or anybody else. And I know this is being sponsored by Chafer. But uh, one thing that I notice oftentimes as a school begins to lessen its training and interest in the original languages, it begins to fall. I've seen that again and again and again. And the reason for that is because the ultimate authority of our theology is, in fact, in the original written word of God. So if you don't have people that are the teachers that are able to read the actual sources, then they lose a certain sense of authority of the text. And, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but when you pick up your Bible and you open it up, if I picked up one, it will say it's a translation. It didn't come down in English. Or it would be coming down all the time and the angels would be constantly producing new versions. See, the point of it is, as we de-emphasize the study of the original languages, I think to that degree we actually uh, begin to lose our view of Scripture that's solid. And I know Greek and Hebrew is hard. Not everybody's going to be a scholar, but everybody needs to be able to read. Matter of fact, Tyndale himself, if I remember correctly, used to study it while he was doing sheep. I think it was Tyndale. If I'm wrong, correct me. But uh, working on learning it himself learning Greek. Look at Wesley reading it on horseback for a couple hundred thousand miles. Try that one sometimes. So one is the priority of original languages. Two, the accommodation of revelation. We, principle two, God condescends to man's understanding. The fact is, if God did not make it plain to us what he thinks, we would not know. So God does accommodate to us. By that, I don't mean change truth. I don't mean that it makes it different than what it is. It's just that we cannot read the mind of God. So God has to reach down to make himself understood or we would not know. We can't reach up. You with me on that? God has to come down. We cannot go up. Uh, thirdly, progressive revelation. God reveals himself, his perspective, and his plan progressively. I really do think that you have to read the Bible from the beginning to the end. That starts in Genesis and in Revelation because there is progression of thought. God, through the periods of history, worked through different people in different circumstances to reveal different ideas. And it's deliberate. In the plan of God, He's in charge. Certain things happen the way they do because He needs them to happen when they do. 
because he's letting more be known about himself and his thinking about the world. One of the greatest things that hit me in seminary, I'd never really seen this because I've been studying the Bible for years by the time I got to seminary. And one of the greatest truths I think I ever learned, I think I got it out of Ron Allen's class one day, and it just hit me hard. The fact that what the Bible's about is not about a lots of things. You know, you get all these verses, right? And all these events and all these people and all you know, all these things you can read about. And I forgot there's a unified principle. The reason for all those things, all those verses, is that they want to tell me who God is and what he thinks about the world. The Bible's a book about God. It's not really only written by God. It's a book about God. Now, it's not just simply a theology, but it's how God views the world, how God interacts with the world, who God is. One hour? Is that? It coincided with this horn. Okay. So that God's trying to tell me something. So the fact is that you have a book that not only is from God, but leads you to God. That's why you can't piecemeal it into daily breads. You have to understand it in the holistic view of what God is saying about himself. So it's a general and special revelation that he's given us progressively. Next you have historical propriety. Importance of historical perspective that is, how would a given revelation be understood in its historical context? This is one of the things I'll get to in, in lecture number three when I talk about the historic premillennial in reference to hermeneutics. What is fascinating to me is that you have people that say, and this is just a brief introduction to it, that the New Testament authors have another meaning of an Old Testament text that the Old Testament text didn't know about. Which means that in progressive revelation, you never, ever have a true meaning of a biblical text until you get the New Testament. So those guys, it's, worse, it's wasted time. These guys could close their Bibles for all those years and wait to the apostles to get the meaning that they meant. Even the prophets, they wrote something, but they really didn't know what they wrote down because they had to wait to get an interpretation a thousand years later. It's a total confusion of understanding. The fact you have progression of the revelation of God in which he reveals himself, his thoughts, his, his movement in history, and the people, when they wrote them and they interpreted them, understood them. Now, that does not mean they understood everything. For example, Isaiah knew, I think, that a future Messiah would actually have certain features. He did not know his name. He did not necessarily understand where he would be born. He did not know his, he knew his dad, but did not know his mom. You know, he, he had some limitation of understanding. You don't have to know everything to know something. He had some limitation of understanding, but he did have understanding and interpreted the text correctly. You can interpret a text correctly and not interpret it entirely. Are you with me? That happens all the time in our communication. Where we talk about music or anything we discuss with people, we can get a piece of what they mean and it's correct, but we may not get the full story about it. So we have progression of revelation. We'll talk more about that. Ignorance. This is hard for us, particularly theologians. 
With biblical study must come humility. I've been telling my students for some years now. I said, listen, you're doing all this learning. You're spending all this time studying and reading all these books. And you can begin to think that you are so smart. But with learning should come humility. Because you don't know it all. Even if we think we do. And it's possible to have a viewpoint that later on you're corrected on and have to change your view. That's embarrassing if you've been dogmatic. Okay? I, I, have, I believe in being convinced of viewpoints. Don't get me wrong. But I just think we have to be careful. Uh, I'm going to be giving you a, a study of the last talk, one of which I did not come up with. It. One of my students in advanced Greek grammar did a paper for me. He wrote the paper. I read it. I thought, I cannot believe it. I never thought of that. I have read that passage so many times. And it never even entered my mind what he taught me in a matter of a few minutes in a paper. And I've had that happen more than once. Teachers can be taught. Well, some can. (laughs) Differentiating interpretation from application. So often people, when they talk about the text, are really discussing application and not interpretation. And any application that does not flow directly from the interpretation, which I will make plain in my discussion too tomorrow with Edie Hirsch, (laughs) any application that does not come directly out of the interpretation is subject to error. And that's why so many people say, you can't do this or you can't do that because the Bible says when you read it, it doesn't say it. That's their application of it, which may not be correct. Checking our interpretation. Now, here's something that's very important. Uh, I'm general editor of a new commentary series with a a group called Lagos. You've heard of that, maybe, Lagos? And uh, one thing I encourage all the uh, the, um, people writing the commentaries, we have 44 volumes, high-level scholarship. Uh, We're really getting some rave reviews on a lot of the commentaries. I'm really happy for them. Um, But I said, here's the process. You should never, ever sit down to write a commentary and have a bunch of commentaries around you. That is a terrible way to write a commentary. And I said, don't do it. Uh, I think uh, Steve Baugh, probably in his book on Ephesians, is the best example of what I think is one of the best commentaries on Ephesians ever been done. Because he had a Ph.D. in the area of... uh, and ancient history at USC, working on the city of Ephesus in the, cur- in the time of the first century area. My goodness, his work is just, he doesn't need the commentaries. To co- he does all the spade work. He does all the historical work and all the linguistic work and all the cultural work and all the religion. He does all that stuff. And when you get it all done, then look at the commentaries to check yourself, to make sure you didn't get crazy. Right? But uh, it's a bad commentary to use your commentary, or use commentaries to write your commentary. People do that, by the way, oftentimes plagiarize. Seriously, they do. I know that for a fact. So, secular studies should be looked at. Historical documents should be looked at. And then you need to look at what other exegetical studies have said. That is an important way to... And I'm not talking about writing a commentary now. The fact is, when you read your Bible, read your Bible and have some books to read it with. Not a commentary to read it with, some books to read it with. You do the spade work. Even at your level, do your spade work. 
and then you can find out what other people are saying. Induction. Determine the meaning. Oh boy, I'm looking at my next slide and it's terrible. Okay. Determine the meaning of a passage and not attributing meaning to it. You have what is called eisegesis, which is two Greek words. One word means into, the other means to lead, to lead into. You lead into the biblical text what's not there. You bring it to the text. It's not there if you didn't bring it. The other is called exegesis, means to lead out. That is, you lead out of the text what is there. So you will lead out of the text what is there and not lead in the text what is not there. Oh, turn it okay. Okay. You'd have to see what my slide looked like. <laughs> okay. So it's leading into is wrong. Leading out of is what you're supposed to be doing. Principle nine, preference for the clearest interpretation. One should take the interpretation that is most probable in the passage according to the context. And we'll talk some more about context later. But I, it's like in, in uh, anybody into real estate or ever done that. You know, they say what's important in real estate is location. The second thing most important is location. And the third is location. Well, the same is true with biblical interpretation. I'm absolutely convinced. Context, context, context. The greatest problem we have in biblical interpretation, which I will make plain in Lecture 4 and some of the examples, is the context. There's the historical context, the cultural context, the, uh, the, uh, the immediate context, the book context. Context is so important to biblical interpretation. And yet so many people readily don't do it. Now, I'll give you an example, and I'll not mention names. It's not Robbie. There's a well-known scholar well-known, who criticized a particular person's... No, I'm not saying Robbie's not a... I'm trying to... <laughs> really, Robbie? I'm trying to clear him of being the one. Among the scholars, he is not the one. But a very well-known scholar criticize another scholar about an issue. And I investigated it myself, knowing both people. And I went back and read the entire chapters and paragraphs for pages and pages of what was being said. And what I found out that my one friend, who's a well-known scholar was picking at portions. He was reading little segments of what the person wrote and saying so-and-so meant such-and-such. This was his view. But when you read the chapter, you realize, if you read it flowing it too, you realize that the things that he was criticizing were not the viewpoints of the person he was criticizing, but were really the presentation from that person of what other people were saying. Do you see what I'm saying? He was interpreting the guy who wrote the book as believing the thing that the guy wasn't believing and he was saying what other people were believing. And that's what happens when you pick into things. Just jump in the middle of the passage. Whether it be a, a book by someone or by a biblical text, you jump right in the middle of the discussion, rip it out, talk about it, when you've never really read what led to it and what came out of it. You really don't know the context. 
See. Now, I know uh, people in, on the television politics and so I always say they took me out of context. And, and there's no out of context because they said it very plainly. They reset it, and it's within a, a couple of statements. <laughs> but I'm talking about a literary work where you have a whole development of ideas and, and you can't just run in and grab something out. You've got to read it all in context. And I gave some examples here, but I'll not go into them. You can look at those later, and you'll see what they're talking about. The fact is, what is the most probable interpretation of a passage based on what we know? Principle 11 and last one. The unity of the sense of Scripture. The Scripture is, in fact... Hmm. Oh, I skipped one. This should be number 10. The meaning of Scripture is one. More than one sense of a text obscures a text. And then you have the problems of allegorization. The problem is there is unity in the Bible. It's not at variance with itself. It's not disputing itself. There's a flow of the text. There's a unity of the sense of Scripture. Uh, you're not going to find the Bible at... Con- if, you, if you truly have one author, which is God, if that's true, then it's not going to be at variance. And the last one, number 11... The analogy of the faith. What that means essentially is this. The Reformation was a good time. It really was a good time for Christianity. does not mean it was a perfect time for Christianity. Uh, some things came in that were very good. Other things were not done that should have been done. So you sort of take what you can get sometimes and be thankful, recognizing more needs to be done. Uh and I think sometimes our research is lacking because of this. We, we keep plowing exactly the same ground. And, and by the way, uh, what, what uh, Robbie mentioned earlier, um, I kept reading and reading and reading because, see, I came out of Pentecostalism, and I, I kept reading on issues and I, about 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to be talking on my fourth talk about an interpretation of things that I came up with and I was working on this that I haven't put in print yet. But it's all copyrighted here, if you'll notice. <laughs> my, my wife said, copyright everything, because I have people that take my stuff and never give me credit for it, and then I have to quote them. That just doesn't seem right. <laughs> it just doesn't seem right. So I'm being more careful anymore. But I thought, there's something going on here in these chapters that are nobody just discussing in the commentaries. They keep just repeating one another. So I went back and did the research. I had some help from a guy by the name of Bruce Metzger, provided some assistance to me, worked with some stuff he gave me, and then I, I looked at, I started reading the Greek literature and studying the Greek cultures, and all of a sudden things opened up that I'd never seen before nobody was talking about. That's what has to be done. Uh, it's, it's important that we recognize that the Reformation provides a lot, but it's a starting point. It's not an ending point. And I'm happy for like works by someone like Bill Watson and his historical work on dispensationalism. That's the kind of thing that needs to be done. We need to be tackling issues, not just simply restating what other people have stated. We need to go back and do the research and open up new understanding. And that's part of what the process I think we have is. And I, what I'm going to do, there's more that I could go into but I think what I'm going to do is, uh, is stop right there and allow some time for Q&A. And uh, we're supposed to finish here in about seven or eight minutes, whatever it is. So uh, let me see if anybody has anything. Yes, sir. Yeah, get the microphone. Pass out. 
from me? Oh, this thing. Can you fit this around? Oh. I guess these are the sheep and these are the goats. This is my right hand. This is the left. Did nobody over here has a question? Anne. See, I knew that would happen. I, I just cover things so thoroughly. I, I did ask my husband first, just so you know. But what what happened to the school of Antioch that made it get less popular and Alexandria got more popular? That's a good question. Uh, there's something very significant about the uh, the Greek world. Um, the, the Greek culture and language was so pervasive in its ideas that it, it, it was very difficult for people to overcome. That's why even in the days of between the Testaments, you know, when they had the Jewish community there, which had been very able to protect itself from the incoming influences all the way from the time of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. But when Greek culture came in, you had, you had Jewish boys trying to change their circumcision. You had, you had them dressing Greek. You had them speaking Greek. I mean, in the Roman Senate, where, I mean, the, the capital of the world, very, very arrogant. I mean, they were very much in themselves. They started speaking Greek on the Senate floor and had to be, a law had to be passed. You couldn't use Greek. You had to use Latin. Greek was very pervasive. Greek philosophical thought was just dynamic with the influence of, uh, of what was going on in Alexandria. It was just hard to find it. And the, the ideas of origin, origin was brilliant. They always say about origin, when he, when, he, when he wrote something, said something, it was really, really good. But sometimes when he wrote something, it was really, really bad. He had a way to, whatever he did was so accepted, even if it was good or bad. I mean, he was just that powerful. You had a couple of people at Syria. You know, you had uh, a man by the name of Theodore uh, Mas, uh, Mopsuestia. Yeah, Mopsuestia. Thank you very much. I can't say that, Rob. Say it again. Mopsuestia. Thank you very much. And uh, and also you... You had Chrysostom. You had Chrysostom now, They were both there. very anti-Semitic. Yeah. So how does, that, how does their rank anti-Semitism relate to their interpretation, their hermeneutic? That's a question. I'm answering her question right now. <laughs> but but you had you had some influence. But the Greek philosophical views I think were so powerful, and the movement by the, at the by the by the fourth century, you had the church who had been in persecution for so long. And I deal with this in my in my article that I did in the Israel book. The church had been under persecution for so long, and finally they had gotten the upper hand that the whole influence of the Greek world, I think, just sort of collapsed the other because it, it just wasn't as important anymore, a lot of these things. Yeah. And, but, you know, that happens in a culture sometimes. You have influences that just simply dwarf everything else. Doesn't mean Just because you're big doesn't mean you're right, you know. Yeah. Yes, sir, you have your question? What was it? My question was... Uh, the anti-Semitism of Chrysostom. Yeah, but it relates to the same thing I just said. The fact is, it looked like the right view. I mean, look at Eusebius. Eusebius was very anti-Jewish and just thought that that uh, uh, Irenaeus was crazy, along with you know Justin and others. Uh, 
because he didn't like the fact that they had a strong Jewish viewpoint. When the people of the ancient world, and see, this is why when you read newspaper cultures, it's like the same thing with Martin Luther instead of the Bible. When you looked at the situation, it looked like the Jews were done for. I mean, they survived when Syria came in. They survived when Babylonia came in. You know, they, they actually did pretty well under the Persians, you know, with Cyrus. And then when when you have the... Uh, when you have finally not only Titus in 70, but AD 135 with Hadrian, they demolished, the, you know, the whole influence of Judaism in the land, renamed the land, renamed the city, that Christianity came in. It just looked like there was the Jews were done for. In other words, the only interpretation that made any sense to most people by that time was that God had given a final judgment against the Jewish people. That's all they, there was no alternative way of thinking by that time. But Wayne, didn't uh, Martin Luther also resent the fact that the Jews didn't respond to his message? Well, that's why he finally turned against them. He was actually positive. If you read his early stuff, he was positive uh, about the Jews. He thought actually there was a future for the Jewish people, which is unusual at that time. But he was sort of going back to the text again. But when they did embrace the gospel... He was assuming they would actually come back to Christ through his gospel. And when they didn't come to Christ through his gospel, then he actually said, if they were truly God's people, they would be back in their land. And he just was too soon. But, yes, he became very negative at that point. Matter of fact, he became so negative. It was, it was Martin Luther. He should have died about two years earlier. A lot of people I know should. And, <coughs> and the fact is, he... he he stayed around long enough to ruin things because Hitler used Luther's stuff as justification for the persecution of the Jews. All right. right. What a okay, we ruling. have room for one more question. You let off with some stuff about epistemology and how we know things. Yeah. What do you say when you encounter people that just challenge that? Like, we can't really know anything and and doubt all surety we can have in any knowledge. You know what a self-refuting argument is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if a person says, I don't know anything, then you say, well, do you know what you just said? How do you know that you don't know anything? That's why I come out. How do you know that what you know, you, you, really, you think you know, you really know? Uh, it's not possible to say, I don't know anything when you claim something. It's not possible to say, I, I don't speak English when you say it in English. These self-refuting arguments just demonstrates that people have not done any serious thinking. It's like agnosticism. I don't know anything for sure. Yeah. Well, except you know that, that for except sure. Except that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of self-refuting arguments. People just don't realize, you know, what they're doing. All right. Well, Wayne, thank you very much. It's a great start, great kickoff for the conference. <clears throat> by, by the way, Chafer Seminary is a strong advocate for, uh, I think we require in our uh, – and, and among our students, so we have four years of Hebrew and four years of Greek. And our goal is that a student is so comfortable with either language when they graduate that they're not trying to relearn it in their first two or three years in the pastorate when they don't have any time. So that's uh, that's our objective. You know, H. H. Rowley. I'm going to butcher this quote, but H. H. Rowley, who is an Old Testament scholar, made made the quote that that no one would really respect a professor or an interpreter of French literature if they couldn't read French literature in the original French. Yet every Sunday there are tens of thousands of people that give all sorts of credibility to pastors who get up and pontificate on the meaning of the text and have no idea what the original says. 
that's right. They're not dealing with the text. Why, why bother with that? Okay, we'll have a break now, and we'll come back at ten minutes after uh, <clears throat> ten minutes after three. Remember, all of the restrooms are uh, unisex. Remember, we're from Houston, so we believe that all. Uh, gender is just your own construct. So anyway, we're ahead of the game, and uh, we'll be back here for Mark Musser's talk at 310.